Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you listening from places like South Burlington, Vermont, Guthrie, Oklahoma, San Bruno, California, Seoul, South Korea, Kuwait City, and Athens, Greece. Be sure to follow the podcast, share it with your friends, leave me five stars and a quick review. And you know, all of that stuff really does help build the audience. That's why I keep telling you about it every week. And by the way, I've usually got about three or four show ideas in the pipeline at any given time. I'm always booking interviews and I've got some great ones coming up, but I'd love to know your story ideas or if you've got a suggestion on someone you'd like to hear me interview, draw me a line at horsepowerheritage.com and click on the contact button there and that'll get you where you need to go. All right, well, today I've got the story of two guys who were like brothers and together they made history on the race course and on the silver screen. I'm talking about Bud Eakins and Steve McQueen and that's coming up right after this. This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. Maybe you can't afford that Shelby 289 Cobra or that Porsche 356 Speedster, but having a scale model on the shelf is easy with Model Citizen Diecast. They stock collector-grade scale models in 143rd scale, 118th scale, and even the massive 18th scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. And if you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout, they'll give you 10% off your order. Limitations apply. Just visit ModelCitizenDieCast.com and check out their great selection. From race cars to classic cars and everything in between. Model Citizen Diecast. Because your inner child still wants to play with cars. In case you didn't know, off-road racing on two or four wheels is a big deal these days. It's driven technology, it's made fortunes, and it's inspired special edition bikes and trucks that you can find on the showroom floor. But this is the story of the early days of dirt, told through the lives of two men who helped make it happen, Bud Eakins and Steve McQueen. Now, of course you know the name McQueen, who doesn't, right? Although you may not know Bud Eakins. But he had a major influence on not just McQueen, but also on motorcycling in America and on the Hollywood stunt community. And the adventures they had? Well, just you wait. Bud Eakins was born in 1930 in Hollywood, California, when it was truly a show business town. Members of the Eakins family were among the thousands of people employed in the motion picture industry. His mother was a bit player, and his uncle was an animal trainer. As a kid, Bud would do odd jobs at his father's welding shop, and he wasn't really that interested in school. As a matter of fact, he dropped out after the seventh grade, and he got caught joyriding with some hooligan friends in a stolen car, which bought him two years in reform school. He might have ended up a ne'er-do-well, incarcerated, on the lam, or drifting from job to job. But as you'll see, a remarkable confluence of events would alter the course of his life. By his late teens, after his stint in reform school, Bud was working for his father full-time. In the corner of the welding shop sat a 1934 Harley-Davidson that belonged to his uncle. The bike had been laid up for years, but Bud was told that if he could fix it, he could have it for $10. Anyway, after some tinkering, he got it running and he was hooked on his first ride. But even back then, the congestion and clamor of automobiles and streetcars made motorcycling in Los Angeles a dicey proposition. Although Southern California was booming, Los Angeles wasn't nearly the endless sprawl of concrete and asphalt that it is today. 
there were still plenty of places inside the city limits to ride on dirt without getting arrested. That first motorcycle took Eakins all over the Hollywood Hills, on the trails alongside the Los Angeles River, and into the San Fernando Valley. And that's where he met some of the best dirt riders in the world, the members of the Pasadena Motorcycle Club. The city of Pasadena is nestled at the foot of the towering San Gabriel Mountains, just north of L.A. The Pasadena Motorcycle Club had been running off-road endurance races across the desert since the 1920s. From the very start, they were modifying their bikes for hard conditions by stripping the excess weight and rerouting the exhaust pipes to run higher along the frame, but it was still a punishing exercise to race over hundreds of miles of dirt on their heavy Indians, Harleys, and Hendersons. Enter a Los Angeles lawyer named Bill Johnson. In the mid-1930s, he became interested in motorcycling and he ordered an English-made Aerial Square 4, an unusual 995cc four-cylinder designed by Edward Turner, the chief engineer at Triumph. Johnson saw that, compared to American motorcycles, his Aerial was far more sophisticated. Great Britain's motorcycle industry was driven by a different set of factors than existed in the U.S. For example, Britain's geography and size and the distance between towns and the better developed road system made motorcycles an attractive means of transportation for the working class. And of course, as soon as there were motorcycles, there was motorcycle racing. The world's greatest motorcycle race, the Isle of Man TT, began in 1907. Triumph motorcycles were battle-tested on the Western Front in World War I. When it was over, the motorcycle had come of age, along with thousands of soldiers anxious to return home, and many bought bikes of their own. By the 1930s, there were at least 80 makes of motorcycles in England, and all that competition drove innovation. But in the United States, the manufacturers had been whittled down to just two, Harley and Indian. But back to Bill Johnson. He liked his aerials so much that he began importing aerials, BSAs, and Triumphs, selling them alongside Indian motorcycles at a shop in Pasadena. And he supported all the local endurance and trial events because it was good for business. By the end of World War II, he was the official U.S. Triumph importer. And their post-war 500cc twins were fairly lightweight and powerful and quickly became a popular choice for racing. By 1949, Bud Eakins bought a 500cc matchless G80 single, and he was entering local hair scrambles, which are basically laps or point-to-point runs on a marked course through terrain. Then there were the big events, like the 150-mile Big Bear Hare and Hound Endurance Run, which ran every January from the dusty ranch town of Saugus across the high desert scrub and up into the San Bernardino Mountains, rising 6,700 feet above the Mojave, through running streams and snowbanks, and finishing at Big Bear Lake. Bud had three first-place finishes there during the 1950s. And there was the Greenhorn Enduro, a breakneck 500-mile run over two days through a desert and mountain course. Out of several hundred riders, fewer than half would typically finish. Bud won the Greenhorn in 1953. In fact, he was good enough to get sponsored by Frank Cooper, the California distributor of matchless and AJS motorcycles. Bud became Cooper's part-time mechanic and his star rider, and matchless offered him a spot on the factory team, and he raced all over Europe for the 1952 season. 
And back in the States, Bud was a fixture on the big daddy of West Coast motocross, the Catalina Grand Prix, which was the brainchild of Frank Cooper. It was two days of thrilling racing on Santa Catalina Island, just 26 miles offshore. The Grand Prix wound its way on a 10-mile course through the streets of Avalon and then on dirt up through the hills. For machines up to 250cc, it was 6 laps, and the following day, the larger displacement bikes ran 10 laps. With the riders flying by just inches from trees, buildings, and the thousands of spectators lining the course, the Catalina Grand Prix had the feel of a European event, and it's even been called the California motocross version of the Isle of Man TT. British bikes dominated, but there were also riders on NSUs, Micos, or the odd BMW or Zundop. Eakins ran in every Catalina Grand Prix from 1951 to 1958, with three finishes and a first place in 1955 on a Triumph 650 Twin. But after the 1958 race weekend, some of the drinking and the hell raising went a little too far and the owner of the Waikiki Bar in downtown Avalon was mugged as he closed up for the night. That was a bad move because the bar owner was Mel Porter, the mayor of Avalon, and he complained to the Chamber of Commerce about all the noise and the dust and the general mayhem. And that was the end of the Catalina Grand Prix. But the real reason for the race's demise was that motocross was still in its infancy, and it hadn't attracted enough money yet. There were only a few sponsored riders, and there wasn't even a cash purse. But that would obviously change in the years to come. By the mid-1950s, with Bill Johnson's hard work as the U.S. distributor and the competition success of Triumph's post-war twins, Bud opened his own Triumph dealership. It quickly became the place to buy a motorcycle, with a steady stream of daredevils shuffling through the door of his shop on Ventura Boulevard in Sherman Oaks. There was character actor Keenan Wynn, who'd been in show business his whole life and who'd been riding nearly as long. And there was Lee Marvin, who'd served in the Marines, was wounded on Saipan, and played a string of hard-boiled heavies, including a drunken motorcycle gang member in The Wild Ones with Marlon Brando. Wynn and Marvin were the real deal, and they both raced on Catalina and in the desert. One of the most colorful characters that hung around Bud's shop was a sign painter and pinstriper named Kenny Howard, better known as Von Dutch. He'd learned the art as a kid, and he made his name in the custom car scene in L.A., often using his elaborate pinstriping to disguise imperfections in body and paintwork. Dutch would hang around Bud's motorcycle shop on again, off again, striping customers' bikes, painting flame jobs, and doing repairs. And then there was Steve McQueen. In the late 1950s, he was starring as bounty hunter Josh Randall on the CBS television series Wanted, Dead or Alive. And one day he strolled through Bud's door, and it turns out they had a few things in common. For starters, they were the same age. Like Bud, McQueen had also gotten in trouble as a teenager, and he'd spent time in reform school. And he did scores of odd jobs for years before he ever got his first acting gig. About the time Bud really started riding motorcycles, McQueen was joining the Marine Corps, an experience he later said made him into a man. Then while Eakins was racing for Matchless in Europe, McQueen was studying acting in New York City and racing motorcycles on Long Island in his spare time. In 1955, he moved to Los Angeles and picked up bit parts here and there. His first big break was the lead in the science fiction horror film The Blob in 1958, but the role of Josh Randall made him a star. 
But Eakins had been around show business his whole life, so he wasn't starstruck by Hollywood actors. And in any event, Steve was no prima donna, so they hit it off right from the start. He taught Steve how to ride in the desert, and McQueen respected Bud's expertise. He showed talent right away, and from that point forward, he entered races under the assumed name Harvey Mushman, because he was under contract and the studio didn't want him riding motorcycles at all. In 1962, Bud entered the International Six-Day Trials, the most challenging motocross event in the world. The idea was to run in the roughest terrain possible and typically and preferably in foul weather. It was considered the Olympics of motorcycling, and that year it was held in Wales. Although there were international teams, Bud entered as a solo rider and he was in contention for a gold medal when his Triumph's gearbox jammed. But he stayed on the throttle and he managed to finish the ISDT with a silver. He also helped his younger brother Dave take on the massive challenge of riding a motorcycle down the length of Mexico's Baja Peninsula. Nearly a thousand miles of hot, dusty torture for man and machine. Dave Eakins was a racer himself, of course, and he'd been working with Honda to prove their machines for the American market. It was Bud who came up with the idea, knowing it would be the ultimate test for Honda's new CL72 Scrambler, a four-stroke 250cc vertical twin that had a few factory modifications from the CB72 street bike. But because of his relationship with Triumph, Bud couldn't ride with Dave, so he was limited to planning the route and tracking Dave's progress from a chase plane. The second rider was Bill Robertson Jr., whose father owned the Hollywood Honda dealership. A new magazine called Cycle World sent a team to cover their adventure. They set off from the Tijuana Telegraph office at midnight on March 17, 1962. The chase plane would leapfrog ahead of the bikes to drop food, fuel, and water. The Hondas encountered everything from deep sand to sharp fields of volcanic rock and thick fog along the coast and they had a couple of spills, including some battle damage, and one bike lost a cylinder, but they finally pulled into the La Paz Telegraph office on the afternoon of March 19th, 39 hours and 56 minutes after leaving Tijuana. It was a major publicity win for Honda, and Japanese motorcycles would eclipse British bikes in the years to come. The consolidation of the English makes, as well as their failure to innovate, had sent them into a long, steady decline even if they didn't know it yet. But Bud barely had time to shake the Mexican dust from his boots before setting off on his next adventure. One day he got a telephone call from McQueen who said, how do you like to go to Germany and be my stunt double on this picture I'm doing? There's a big scene with a motorcycle jump and the studio's insurance guys won't let me do it. The film was The Great Escape, about a group of allied airmen breaking out of a German prisoner of war camp. By June, they were on location in Germany. McQueen did a lot of his own riding in the film, but it was Bud Eakins who did the epic high jump over a barbed wire fence over 12 feet high and covering a distance of 65 feet. To make it work, the stunt coordinator did speed and distance calculations, and then they dug a trench so Bud would have a launch ramp, and yet it would be concealed by careful camera placement. And he did it in one take. And that was about all he wanted to do. It was the first time a stunt of that kind had been done in a major motion picture, and it was the start of a new career for him. 
Eakins got his Stuntman's Association card, and he also built bikes for the movies. In 1964, Bud was back at the International Six-Day Trials, leading a six-man team, this time including his brother Dave and Steve McQueen. The event was held that year in Communist East Germany, and it was the height of the Cold War, so there was a lot of tension and suspicion, but also curiosity about the Americans and their big triumphs. Unfortunately, Bud took a spill and he broke his leg, And then late on day three, Steve was behind and pushing hard to catch up when a local on his own motorcycle wandered into his path on the course. They collided and McQueen's Triumph tumbled into a ditch, folding the forks under the frame. He only had minor injuries, but the bike was trashed. Once his leg had healed, Bud was back in Mexico, this time riding a triumph alongside his brother in an attempt to beat the time of their first Baja run two years earlier. And they squeaked it out by just eight minutes, which gives you an idea of how brutal and long those Baja runs are. By the mid-1960s, Baja racing was on the map. A Los Angeles off-roader named Ed Perlman had read about the exploits of the Eakins brothers, and he thought this kind of desert racing would appeal to his fellow four-wheelers. So he talked it over with his buddy, Dick Sepek. Sepek had spent plenty of time in Baja in his Toyota Land Cruiser, and he saw that he needed a wider, tougher tire for the harsh conditions there. So he asked the Armstrong Rubber Company to make him some. And amazingly, they agreed to do it. And then, of course, all his friends wanted their own special tires. And in no time, Dick Sepek's two-car garage was filled with tire orders and they became so popular that he opened a retail business adding off-road shocks and suspension kits. Perlman and Sepek organized a four-wheel Baja race in 1966 and three teams made the run. The winning entry crossed the line in La Paz in 41 hours and 45 minutes. Then they founded the National Off-Road Racing Association, and the next year they made it official, calling the race the Mexican 1000. 68 entries showed up, including a wild tube-frame mid-engine buggy designed by a General Motors engineer named Vic Hickey and built by the Hearst Corporation. And this thing was four-wheel drive, and what they did was they bolted a Chevy 350 to a Turbo 400 automatic and mated that to a Dana transfer case. Then power ran through Corvette posi-traction differentials on either end, through off-the-shelf half-shafts from the new front-wheel drive Oldsmobile Toronado. But the really cool part is that the engine was installed backwards, facing the rear of the car, and the gearbox was more or less in the center, and then cooling was from a large fan and truck radiator mounted on the back of the chassis. The buggy also had four-wheel independent long-travel suspension, four-wheel disc brakes, a close-ratio steering box, and it was good for about 140 miles an hour. And supposedly the whole thing was built in about a month. Hickey called the car the Baja Boot, maybe because it kicked butt. In any event, It had a suspension failure in that first Baja, and they didn't finish. However, Steve McQueen bought the car, and he and Bud Eakins entered it in the Stardust 7-Eleven Desert Race, sponsored by the Stardust Hotel and Casino, 711 miles across the Nevada desert. During the race, as they were flying over a dry lake bed, one of the rear wheels came rolling past them. The Oldsmobile CV joint had failed, and off came the wheel. 
Somehow they got word back to their support crew in Vegas who managed to persuade some spectator in the parking lot to lend them his axle from his own personal Oldsmobile. Hasty repairs were made, but further down the course, other mechanical problems came up and Eakins and McQueen were forced to retire the boot. Steve would drive it again in the 1969 Baja 1000, but again, mechanical failure would take him out. And that time it was the transmission. By the late 60s, McQueen was the highest paid actor in Hollywood and really one of the first bona fide action stars. He'd gotten a reputation as a stubborn and difficult guy to work with because he frequently insisted on doing things his way or the highway. But by some accounts, when it came to technical precision and his professional obligations, he was humble, which is not something you hear about many actors. That mix of determination and humility paid off with a film called Bullet in 1968. It was made by McQueen's company, Solar Productions, and it's a seminal example of the so-called American New Wave period of films that broke from the old studio system. He plays Lieutenant Frank Bullitt, a San Francisco police detective who finds himself in a deadly game of cat and mouse with mob hitmen. McQueen insisted on realism in the film, so it was shot entirely on location. And of course, the centerpiece of the story is the car chase between McQueen's 1968 Ford Mustang and the Assassin's black 1968 Dodge Charger through the streets of San Francisco. Once again, Steve did some of the driving in the Mustang, but Bud shared those duties for the riskier stunts. And he also plays a motorcyclist who lays his bike down in one memorable sequence. The driver of the Charger also deserves a mention here, and he was a steely-eyed veteran stuntman and actor named Bill Hickey. No relation to Vic, by the way. He looks like he could either do your taxes or strangle you to death. Anyway, Bullet set the bar for the movie car chase. It's not cartoonish like the Bond films. The tension is real because the driving was real. They hit speeds of over 100 miles an hour on public roads. And it continues to be a reference for stunt coordinators and film directors alike. 1970 was a very busy year for Steve McQueen. First, he bought a Porsche 908 on the suggestion of John Von Neumann, the California Porsche distributor. And after some modifications and testing at Willow Springs, he raced the car all winter at Riverside and then Holtville near El Centro and in Phoenix. He was also financing filmmaker Bruce Brown's latest documentary, On Any Sunday, about the growing sport of motocross. Brown had previously made The Endless Summer in 1966, which is still the most famous surfing movie in history. So along with... Talented motocross pros Malcolm Smith and Mert Lawell, who was the reigning national champ, Steve would also ride in on any Sunday. In early March, it was off to Riverside County to race in the Elsinore Grand Prix. Malcolm Smith finished in first place, and Steve came in eighth, very respectably, on a 400cc Husqvarna, even after breaking his left foot. Just weeks later, with his foot still in a cast, he was back in the Porsche 908 at the 12 Hours of Sebring, along with co-driver Peter Revson. They finished in second place, with Revson behind the wheel, only 23 seconds behind Mario Andretti driving a Ferrari 512S for the factory team. 
And then in June came the film project McQueen had been itching to make for years, Le Mans. The Solar Productions team had done a lot of scouting work a year prior, and now it was time to capture the race on film. Again, he wanted realism, and he also didn't want to hire a cast of 10,000. They'd partnered with John Wire's team in the Golf Porsche 917Ks, but once again, just as in the filming of The Great Escape, the insurance company refused to cover McQueen as a driver. So Joe Siffert and Brian Redmond's 917 ultimately stood in as the hero car, and McQueen's Porsche 908 was used as the camera car. For four months after the race, the production company rented the circuit and continued to film with Steve at the wheel. Lamal was McQueen's Rubicon in some ways, and it proved to be a tumultuous picture to bring to the screen. And it didn't fare well at the box office in its own time, but it's since become a cult classic despite plenty of flaws. Meanwhile, Bud had been working on a made-for-TV movie called Then Came Bronson, about a disillusioned newspaper man who quits the rat race in San Francisco to roam the country on his Harley Davidson. Bud did triple duty on the project as the bike builder, the stunt coordinator, and as a stunt rider. The film became a TV series that only lasted one season, but it was a springboard for a long list of projects for Bud throughout the 70s, including 25 feature films and the memorable TV series Chips, which is about a pair of Southern California highway patrolmen who get into adventures on their Kawasaki's, living the good life and solving crimes that motorcycle cops really have no business investigating in the first place. And Bud even drove the Delta Tau Chi Deathmobile in the climactic scene of Animal House. <laughs> and I'm not going to explain Animal House. I'll be right back with more Horsepower Heritage right after this. Horsepower Heritage is teaming up with Valkyrie Racing to support their efforts to combat child trafficking. And with your donation, you can enter to win one of 10 unique digital art pieces of their Polar Porsche 356. Just go to ValkyrieRacing.com forward slash donate 356. And once you make your donation, visit my homepage at horsepowerheritage.com. Then click on the contact button and send me your name and the reference number for your donation. You'll be entered to win one of 10 of these terrific art pieces by artist Wade Devers. The entries will be drawn at random on December 20th. And if you miss any of this, don't worry. Just look in the show notes for complete instructions. 100% of your donation goes to help victims of child trafficking in five countries. And on behalf of Valkyrie Racing, thanks for your support. Despite all his professional success, Steve McQueen's demons hollowed out his personal life. A long string of affairs and drug abuse ruined his first marriage, and the second one wasn't much better. It would appear that the one refuge he had, even from himself, was messing around with cars and motorcycles and, of course, his friendship with Bud, which had been a constant and stable force in his life for over a decade. And it might have been the only setting where he could let his guard down because Bud didn't care that he was flawed or that he was an international superstar. He was just Steve. In the spring of 1979, McQueen moved with his girlfriend Barbara from Trancas Beach in Malibu to the Ventura County farming town of Santa Paula, living for a time in a hangar at the small airport and eventually buying a modest ranch property. 
He also bought a vintage Stearman biplane and began learning how to fly. Bud and Steve kept hangars full of cars and bikes and had a running competition for who had the most antique motorcycles. And they would go to swap meets and haggle over bikes and parts, and Steve was just trying to live his life as a regular guy. But for about a year, he'd had a persistent cough, and when he finally went to a doctor in December of 1979, a biopsy revealed that he had mesothelioma, an incurable cancer of the lungs that's triggered by inhaling asbestos particles, which is something he did while working on pipe insulation during his time in the Marine Corps, as well as being exposed on the racetrack because asbestos was used in all sorts of things for its fire retardant properties, like brake shoes and clutch linings and even fire retardant suits. After trying conventional chemotherapy and radiation, McQueen sought experimental treatments in Mexico, but the cancer spread. He spent the last year of his life coming to terms with his regrets and seeking redemption. He and Barbara were married in their Santa Paula home, and the Reverend Billy Graham came to visit him near the end. Steve McQueen flew to Mexico for one last desperate attempt to beat the cancer, but he died in surgery on November 7, 1980, at the age of 50. Bud Eakins was the same age, and Steve's death hit him hard, and things were never quite the same. But his stunt career continued to flourish, and he worked actually into his 60s. And then his health began to decline in the 1990s, and the motorcycle dealership closed its doors after nearly 50 years. Bud Eakins died of natural causes on October 6, 2007 at the age of 77. Like motocross and Baja racing, the legends of both these men have only grown in the time since. Cars and bikes from McQueen's collection have understandably been commanding huge prices at auction. Last year, Triumph produced special edition Bud Eakins models of the Bonneville, and books and documentaries and memorial rides have all tried to capture their macho spirit. The thing is, Bud and Steve would probably laugh about all the fuss, because all they ever wanted to do was ride hard all day and then have a cold beer. And it was really that simple. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to follow the podcast, leave me five stars and a quick review, buymeacoffee.com forward slash hpheritage if you want to throw a couple bucks in the gas tank, read articles and watch videos on the homepage at horsepowerheritage.com. And until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.